Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see you all today. Um, if you have your Bibles handy, go ahead and grab them and turn to uh, Proverbs 12, 28. We'll be jumping off with our theme uh, from there here in a little bit. But uh, I don't, um, when, when sermon reflection services come around, I don't, I don't often participate in, in the reflecting. And so I wanted to start off today with a little bit of reflection and appreciation for last Sunday's sermon for Jackson. And it's just something that stood out to me while he was preaching and has kind of stuck with me throughout the week. And, and it was this comment in particular um, that sometimes we're guilty of under-trusting the Proverbs because we can tend to emphasize with the Proverbs what they are not. And that's important to do, right, to emphasize what they're not. Um, but, but, but sometimes because of the focus on what they're not, we can fail to appreciate them and, and believe them and to receive them for what they are. So I don't know where you are, Jackson. I saw you somewhere after you got down from the podium. But thank you for that. That was very hope-filled and encouraging for me. I know I've been guilty of under-trusting at times. So Proverbs 12, 28, uh, let me read that for you. We're going to be talking about the theme of life and death in Proverbs today. And of course, that's a, that's a pretty sobering theme. So let's dive right in here. Proverbs 12, 28 uh, says, in the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Now that's a very comforting word, isn't it? Because we know that death is a great enemy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that death is the last enemy. For those of us who face it, when it draws near, it might seem to be the final blow to all of our hopes and dreams. And I couldn't help but think about uh, how, how the disciples would have felt on, they wouldn't have called it Good Friday, they would have called it Crucifixion Friday, they would have called it the world's worst Friday. We call it Good Friday and there's good reason that we call it Good Friday. But on that first Friday, they would not have called it good. It was, as far as they could tell, the end of all of their hopes and dreams. And yet here's the good news today. God was at work taking the world's worst day and making it the best one. So, so there's a way beyond death's reach, and Proverbs begins to sketch that out for us. The New Testament, as we'll see here in a bit, fills in those contours. But, but the good news for any of us today, and, and, and I actually have some particular people in mind, <clears throat> whether you're here, whether you're viewing via the, via the stream, the good news for any of us today is that if you're in Christ, God is also about the business of taking our weakest, worst, and most frail day and making it our greatest because of Christ. If you are with him right now, and I'm thinking of a, of a friend and his father who are, who are watching now, <clears throat> and, and I would just encourage you, I hope this is okay to say, I would just encourage you, Mr. Clark, cling to Christ and the best is yet to come. Paul argues in Romans 8 that if we get this, that if we get the embrace of Christ, then nothing, not even death itself, can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And that's where we're starting today, and that's where we want to end. But before we get there, there are a few other things that I think Proverbs would like us to see. So if you would, I'd pre uh, join me in prayer that God would help us to see and to savor all that we need to hear to receive, to taste, and trust this morning. Let's pray. Father, we all need a word from you this morning, whether we realize it or not, whether we feel like it or not, whether death seems imminent or far off, 
We all need a word from you this morning. Some of us are uh, acutely aware of that. Death is drawn near. Its attack seems powerful. Its attractants seem intoxicating. We, uh, we're in need of you, and we're thankful for how you provide, Lord, the final remedy for death and the gift of your son, Jesus, who is, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life. And we pray that he would be exalted in our hearing and our receiving and our trusting of your word today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, three, three key emphases. I've got three, three key emphases today and then some application. That's, that's where we're going. Here's point number one is going to be um, that when you think about the theme of life and death in Proverbs and, and really throughout the scriptures, there is both a final outcome and a pathway to those final outcomes. So a, a, an outcome with finality to it and then a pathway to those outcomes. Second point is going to be that there are both external and internal dimensions to life and death. External and internal dimensions to life and death. And then third, and, and, and what will be finally, and, and I think most importantly, is to see how Jesus answers the needs of everything that comes up in those first two points. So outcome pathway, external, internal, Jesus is yes and amen. The first of these uh, points is that there's an outcome and a pathway to life and, and death. We, we've been seeing this in Proverbs for some time, haven't we? Proverbs presents these two ways. They're, they're, they're contrasted throughout the book of Proverbs, and they're, they're contrasted most often in the form of wisdom and folly. And there's a sense then in which life and death in Proverbs are the final respective outcomes of wisdom and folly. And there's also a sense in which life and death are pathways in the present moment that all of us are on one or the other of these pathways that is taking us nearer to one of those two final outcomes. So, so we can think of it as we can think of it as the way of death or, or maybe the way to death, the way of life or the way to life. And as I mentioned, we're all on one of these roads or the other. And, and really the whole thrust of the book of Proverbs is to exhort us, to encourage us time and again to make the wise choice, the choice for life, the choice that ultimately defies death while we still have time to do so. Now, when we think of life and death, probably the first thing that comes to mind is the element of the, the final outcome, right? We, we think of life and, and we know, for example, that the gospel encourage, encourages us with the hope of eternal life. And when we think of death, we commonly think, uh, maybe most immediately at least, of graves and funerals and and at least the end of this physical life. And, and Proverbs speaks to this. So, so for example, Proverbs eleven seven tells us that when the wicked dies, his hope will perish. So there's an end point, right? There's a finality. And, and when we think of the finality of death in particular, that's probably the part that we tend to fear. At least when death is drawing near to our door and, and when the, 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 the approach of death maybe reveals that our hopes are paper thin, right? That can tend, to, can tend to spike fear. And if you've lived very long, then you're acquainted with this grief. And, and as I mentioned this morning, I know some here today are facing it right now. You faced it very recently. You're dealing with it perhaps even, even today. And while we're thankful that death doesn't have the last word for those that are in Jesus, 
it does deserve our grief. You think of, uh, you think of Jesus approaching Lazarus's tomb. And Jesus is very well aware of the fact that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but how do we see him engage that moment? He engages it with anger and with grief and with, with weeping. So, you know, I don't, I don't do pet peeves very often, but I recognize that, that in many ways, particularly uh, for, for believers, that funerals can be a homegoing kind of celebration. There's a rightness to that. There's a rightness to celebrating a life that was well-lived and a race that was well-run and, and, and gives testimony to the glory of Jesus. And, and we recognize that this person is with the Lord in a better place. We can give thanks for all of that. But death is an enemy. It is not natural. We sometimes say things like, uh, nothing so natural as death and taxes. And when we say that, we mean, well, you know, that's common, right? Everybody pays taxes, everybody dies. And that's true, but death is not natural. Death is a sign that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's an invader. It's an intruder. It doesn't belong here. Jesus came to eliminate it by the price of his own death to eliminate the power of death. So, so I mean, right, a funeral can be a place that, that maybe calls for mixed emotions, a, a complex emotional register for the Christian, because there can be celebration for homegoing, but it is also right to grieve. Anyway, that's maybe more of a footnote, but uh, okay, so, so there's an outcome, there's a final outcome, but there's also a pathway to those outcomes. Life and death are not just the final moment or the, or the final event. They're also pathways in the present moment that each of us are on heading in one or the other of those directions. And, and so if, when we think of death, if the finality of death is the part we tend to fear, I think the pathway is the part we tend to overlook. We, we tend to neglect on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, which path am I on? Which trajectory am I, am I moving in? And, and we already saw from Proverbs 14.12, as a parallel in, in 16.25, that says there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. Proverbs 3.7 would call this, this way, the way that leads to death, that's, that's, that's the way that seems right to man. It would call it being wise in our own eyes. It's a way of, 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 of seeing ourselves and seeing the world and trusting our own wisdom and repudiating God's. But, but the Proverbs tell us that, that that kind of wisdom is really no wisdom at all if it puts us on the road that is marked for death. By contrast, there is a road that leads to life. Proverbs ten seventeen, Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life. It's a path that's going somewhere. So, so we see that life and death, right, they've, they've got these final elements to them, but they also reach into, into our present, into our present experience, well before the day that we experience our final breath. And, and, so, and so death can reach into our current moment with uh, elements like, like sickness and sin, right? Those are, those are elements of the way of death. And, and yet on the other hand, there, there are things like repentance, and humility before God's word that are reflections in this life of someone who is on the path to life. Ray Ortland, uh, in his commentary on the Proverbs, I, I thought he put it very well. He said, we sinners stray into the territory of death every day. But in the book of Proverbs, God is counseling us, alerting us to where death lurks. 
When the sage warns his son against sexual sin, for example, he says, the dead are there. There is a hell before hell, but there is also a heaven before heaven. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. So this is what God wants for every one of us today, to die less and to live more right now through Christ. End of quote. Now, the reason that, that wisdom and folly as these respective paths of life and death are so forcefully contrasted all throughout the book of Proverbs is, is really to indicate the urgency of, of clinging to the way of life. Wisdom is calling us away from, off of the path to death while there's still time. Proverbs 8.36 cries out with this statement, all who hate me love death, wisdom says. So, so what is it that produces these divergent ways of walking, walking the path of life, walking the path of death? What produces this, according to the Proverbs, is the heart. So Proverbs uh, 4.23 tells us, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The, the heart in the Bible, it's not just the center of a person's emotion, it's the control center of the whole person. So it covers emotion, cognition, volition. The heart is the fountain from really from which uh, all of human behavior flows. So maybe some of you are familiar, for example, with Proverbs 18.21. It tells us that both death and life are in the power of the tongue. So, right, we, we read a proverb like that and we recognize, okay, my speech, my tongue, my words can serve either path. It can walk on either path, the path of death, the path of life. Which one it walks is determined by what the heart loves. So the question for every one of us in this present moment is which pathway will you embrace? Right? Which pathway will we embrace? Because those respective pathways are going somewhere. All right, that's point number one. There's an outcome a finality to life and death, and also a pathway there. Second key point, there are also external and internal dimensions to life and death, right? So think about death with me for a moment first. With, with death, there are clearly external attacks, right? Uh, like the onset of, of sudden disease, like the onset of, of, of COVID, like the onset of, of cancer. That's, a, that's an external attack. There are also, with death, the external lures, lures of temptation that are sometimes put before us by other predators, right? Be they, be they people or, or forces of spiritual warfare, uh, there, there, are, there are predators at play in the world in which we live, and sometimes they put out external lures. But, and this is very important for us to see, death is not only external in its advance. It also advances internally in this fallen world where we have, at least even as believers, some lingering attraction to the way of folly. It's not just that temptations are out there, it's that I am temptable. So it's not just that death draws near and attacks us, it's that, it's that we all, at some time, choose to draw near and embrace the way of death. We, we move towards it voluntarily, right? Volitionally, we place our hope in the false promises of the way of folly the way of temptation. So, so in Proverbs 119, we're told that it is greed 
for unjust gain that takes away the life of its possessors. So, right, in that, in that passage, it's, it's not just the external lure of the possibility of unjust gain, but it's the heart's greedy attraction to that unjust gain, to that way of folly that takes the person's life. If the heart was not attracted, in this case, to ill-gotten gain, the lure wouldn't have an effect. So there's a, there, there's a, there's a kind of sinking, right, between the, the external and the internal elements. Or, or think about, um, maybe for a minute, think about living that is, that is not well integrated, that is, we could say, disintegrated. Um, in Proverbs 26, we read, we read about hypocrisy in speech. Verses 24 to 26 tell us the following. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. So he hates, but watch this. When he speaks graciously, believe him not. For there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. So there's a, there's a kind of two-facedness in speech, an outward presentation to others that does not correspond to what's going on in the depths of the heart. You ever, ever find yourself engaging a form of two-facedness, a form of hypocrisy, uh, speaking maybe or thinking or behaving differently when you're alone? than we do when we're in the company of those whose opinions we care about? Are you ever one way on social media and another way in person? That, that, when that happens, right, that's not just death's shadow hovering over us, that's death's shadow operating within us, okay? It's the, it's the tug of the flesh, it's the tug of the old man at war Within us, and and while there'll be more to say on that here in a bit, I, I want you to consider for a second: in what ways, perhaps, you may be giving yourself to the way of death, to the way of folly. Today, when you came in, right? What's 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 coming to mind? What ways are we trading birthrights for bowls of stew, making small compromises? I want you to ask the Lord. I'm actually going to give you a, a 30 seconds here but in, in just a minute. But I, I want you to ask the Lord to show you if there are ways in which you internally are syncing up with the way of death, receiving it, hoping in it, trusting in it. And then ask him to help you turn back from that path. So I'll give you just a minute. You can jot a note and then, and then return to that at the end of the sermon. Okay? What ways are you making small compromises perhaps? We'll have some time to process that with the Lord at the end of the service. But the way of death is sneaky, isn't it? It is, it's subtle, and in many ways it doesn't even play fair. The drift onto that path occurs, whoops, hang on to that, a degree at a time. So it can be easy to rationalize this little choice or that little choice, and, and harder to see the overall trajectory of one's, of one's drift. I had a student years ago, not here, doesn't live in California anymore, so. 
years ago. He got cheesed off with me in class. We were getting ready to take a quiz. And I just, I just made the offhand remark, something like, uh, you know, hey, guys, if, if you make yourself comfortable in the next few moments with cheating on this quiz, you'll be setting foot to the path that could make yourself cozy up to cheating on your taxes down the road. And, and the student, I mean, it was very visually off-put by that kind of observation, by that kind of comment. He gave me one of these, you know, come on man expressions. And, and he actually spoke up. He's like, man, those, those things are a million miles apart. But here's the point. They're on the same path. They may, in fact, be different way stations along the path. There may be one today and another years down the road, but they're on the same path. Now, we need to see that, that life, right? So, so death has external and internal elements, but, but life in Proverbs has internal and external elements as well. And it's the, the internal and external elements of life that answer and counter those corresponding elements in the realm of death. So Proverbs 13, 14 says, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. So, so true wisdom, we've already seen, it does not accord merely with the way that seems right to man. But, but in Proverbs 13, 14, this, this wisdom comes from the outside. It comes from, it doesn't originate with us. I didn't invent it. Right? I didn't think it up. I didn't create it. I receive it. It's given by God's revelation, and it's passed on by wise disciples. So, so it comes externally. But, but notice, again, in that verse, that once it is received, it does something internally to the receiver, right? It, it awakens the receiver and enlivens the receiver to do what? To turn away from the snares of death. So life, it, just in Proverbs, is gracious in its external and internal elements. And, and, and as we begin to think about that in Proverbs, it of course, it of course leads us to inquire for more. Is there, uh, there, hope begins to be awakened, but how is that hope fleshed out? And that's where we come to our third point. <clears throat> the hope that Proverbs awakens is most fully and finally fulfilled in Christ. He is the definitive wisdom of God. He is the one who uniquely remedies the external attack of death and the internal allure of, of sin. So um, Proverbs 14.32, right? Again, it, it, it lights the way. It, it, it points us in the right direction. The, the passage there concludes by saying, the righteous finds refuge in his death. And that's great news, Right? We, we, we hear that and we go, yes, tell me more. And we do find more, but, but it's the New Testament exposition of, of Jesus that tells us exactly how the righteous can find refuge in his death. So how does Christ do that? First, uh, his life, his death, his resurrection are what conquered the external attack of death and the finality of death. So here I'm thinking of a passage like Hebrews 2. Uh, verses 14 and 15 in particular, tell us, since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Isn't that amazing? That the one who has eternally been intrinsically invulnerable to death makes himself vulnerable to death's attack on our behalf. Death has no power, no claim, no right to him. And he makes himself vulnerable on our behalf. And Jesus also shows the way that we can become increasingly freed uh, internally from, from an attraction to the way of death, to the way of folly in the here and now. Uh, sometimes we, we eat the lies of false promises of temptation. We, we voluntarily enslave ourselves a little bit more to sin. We've already seen how uh, sometimes maybe we can compartmentalize who we are in public from who we are in private. That's not true of Jesus. Cannot be said of him. He never walked the path of disintegration, of compartmentalization. Jesus embraces the way of life in the face of every temptation to indulge the way of death, to indulge the way of folly. Jesus was the, he was the same in what he said as he was in what he did. So, so he tells others to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then when he's hanging on a cross, he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus was the same in private as he was in public. So when he's publicly spiked to a cross, he does not call a legion of angels to rescue him, though he has every right to do so. In the public eye, he doesn't self-protect. In the privacy of the Garden of Gethsemane, where nobody's there, and the only people who are nearby are asleep and would never be any the wiser He doesn't run and hide. He doesn't look out for number one. He doesn't self-protect, whether public or private. He's the same person. In both cases, he's riveted on the glory of God, on the good of sinners, and is proving himself literally to be the way, the truth, and the life. So how should we respond to that kind of good news, right? So I've got now some application uh, that... I want to address first to people either who are with us in present or or in person or or, or maybe viewing on the live stream. Maybe you've logged in, stumbled across this channel for the very first time. You're wondering what this Jesus stuff is all about. A few remarks initially to people who, who recognize I've never embraced the way of life. Here's the exhortation to you. Do it today. Do not put it off any longer. Because the farther any of us travels down death's way, the less likely we are to return. We, we, we sometimes don't recognize that when we feel like we can put off dealing with Jesus. You know, maybe we've heard some things and, and, and ah, it's somebody I should get to know. When we rationalize putting Jesus off and, and, and deferring dealing with him till down the road. What we don't recognize is that staying on death's pathway, staying on the pathway of folly, changes us into people who are more and more comfortable being there, right? We're, we're, in other words, we're, we're, we're not likely, apart from the intervention of God's Holy Spirit, 
to have more alerted senses to our need of Jesus if we hang out on the path of folly longer than we have. And the more we do that, the more removed we become from recognizing what it was we were made for. So if that's you, if you're watching via the live stream and you think, I need to deal with Jesus, and I'm not sure how to do that. We already mentioned that you can reach out uh, through email prayer at graceevfree.org. Somebody will get in touch with you right away. If you're here and you're thinking, I've never done that and I don't know how, and I would, I would at least like to, to, to know what that involves. At our prayer tent in the back, we have people after the service who will be here. They would love to pray with you. They would love to answer your questions. They would love to help you. I'll be available. Most of the people who are sitting in the, in the vicinity of you would love to answer some of your questions. <clears throat> well, what about those who have embraced the way of life, but like any of us, you're struggling in between the first day and the final day, right? Slippage on the, on the path. How can we be encouraged? I have, I have three quick encouragements for you. Number one, probably the most obvious is that continuing on in the path of life requires walking on that path day in and day out. That's a simple observation, isn't it? But physically speaking, you can only walk so far in a given day. If you, if you had a goal that you were going to walk across the United States of America, you couldn't do that in one day. But you can set a trajectory. You can set a trajectory with how you walk today. So sanctification is kind of similar, isn't it, right? Every step we take is a step forward, a step backwards, a step on this path, a step on that path, a step towards hardening the heart, or a step towards warming the heart. The point is, again, fairly simple. You can't take every step today, but you can take today's step. What is that step? What is it for you, where you are? Is it, uh, is it, a, is it a form of repentance, confession, Reconciliation with someone, drawing near to the Lord in prayer, coming back this afternoon for the Lord's Supper, warming your heart over the tangible, touchable, tasteable elements that represent Christ's broken body and shed blood for you? What is that? What is that today? Then do that today. Point uh, or, or application number two. Continuing in the path of life requires hearing and heeding. So hearing and heeding. Here we've got an external element and an internal element again, right? We must hear God's word in order to be able to heed God's word. Hearing, obviously, uh, is the kind of thing you're doing right now. Um, that's an external element. We, we recognize when we sit, for example, under the preaching of God's word, when we attend Bible studies, when we go to uh, Band of Brothers and, and, and those the men's breakfast and those kind of things, we, we recognize there is an external authority to which we all need to submit again and again and again and again because we understand, right, that the way that seems right to man is a path that leads to death. So I need other words I need, I need an external authority to, to match my life to. That's, that's why we give ourselves to these kinds of practices at Grace. But hearing by itself, if all we do is hear, that's not enough. In fact, the scriptures teach us that if we don't heed God's wisdom, we're really not hearing it in the first place. So we saw a little while ago with Proverbs 13, 14, that the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. 
Proverbs 14.27 says exactly the same thing as Proverbs 13.14 with one exception. It switches, it switches out the teaching of the wise for the fear of the Lord. It says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. And, and it, on, on the face of it, that looks like, well, which one is it? Is it the teaching or is it the fear? Is it the fear or is it the teaching? And the answer is yes. In, in this coordinated, synced up way, isn't it? Because the teaching of the wise is external, right? That's, that's, that's the transmission of God's revelation, exter- an authority external to me that I'm adhering to. But the fear of the Lord is the internal embrace of that teaching. There, 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 there's got to be both. There's got to be a word of wisdom that can see farther than I can see that's outside of us. But there must also be the personal reception and embrace of that wisdom inside of us. When that happens... And the word is the word of Christ that guides our steps away, Proverbs says, from the snares of death. Quick footnote here. I just talked about the fear of the Lord. That may be a new concept for some of you. If it is, don't get hung up on that, right? A lot of times we don't know what to do with the fear of the Lord. Fearing God in the Bible is not the same thing as being afraid of God. Okay, fear of God produces love for God being afraid of God produces resentment of God. They're not the same thing. We're talking about one, not the other. And if you want more on that, I would recommend to you Michael Reeves' new little book, What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord? Be very encouraged. It's like 80 pages. Super uh, easy read, but, but also very encouraging. All right. Third application to the believer continuing in the walk on the path of life. This walk, continuing in this walk requires treasuring and trusting, treasuring and trusting Jesus specifically. So we just had hearing and heeding, now treasuring and trusting. Treasuring Christ is what fuels trusting him even when the internal battle is difficult, when the external foe uh, seems powerful, seems mighty, intimidating. So the question for us is how do we do that? How do we cultivate the, the heart that treasures Christ so the outflow of that heart will be a commitment to the path of life in the various uh, trials and, and, and issues that we face on a day-to-day basis. And I, here's what I want to uh, commend to you. So Paul, in Ephesians 1, uses this expression, the eyes of the heart. Now we, so we've already, right, the heart, it's the, it's the whole person, but, but in this expression, there's a sense in which the heart has eyes. The heart can see and, you know, even taste and touch, as it, as, as it were. And, and so with the eyes of the heart, we cultivate treasuring Jesus by, by beholding him with the eyes of the heart. What should we behold? Here's a couple of things. Behold the one who gives you life, taking death into his bosom for you. Behold with the eyes of the heart, the one on whom death has no claim, refusing to flee death's curse for you. What should we behold? We should behold him with the eyes of the heart, drinking the cup of God's wrath that has been reserved for us, drinking it to the very last drop, so that in his love the claim of death on us is finished. That's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about when it says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So it's a that's a fascinating 
statement. That's a fascinating passage. There's, there's, a, there's a principle of spiritual maturation in 2 Corinthians 3.18. I boil it down like this. The principle is we become like what we behold. Okay, behold, this is the language of, 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 of gazing and treasuring with the eyes of the heart. Whatever has that claim on our heart's affections and unavoidably has a power to shape and transform us into its image. If I, if I had a PowerPoint projector here, the PowerPoint image that I would put up for you is the image of Gollum at the, at the, um, at, at the cracks of the fire of Mount Doom, right? At the, the point at which he's, he's falling into the fires. He's plummeting to his death. And, and, and if you recall the image, at the same time he's, he's plummeting into his death, he's looking up at the ring that is falling after him with arms outstretched and glee on his face as he goes to his doom. What's happening? His heart has been ensnared. He has been beholding the wrong thing for however many hundreds of years Gollum has been. Be it's, it's an inviolable law. It's not like you can, have, you can do this or not do this. Everyone's doing it. Everyone's beholding something. Everyone's treasuring something. And everyone is being shaped by whatever it is they treasure. Now, the good news, now, there, 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 there's all kinds of false paths. And, and, and elements of, right? But the good news is there's a proper path. There is a life-giving path. There is a path that will shape us and conform us into the image of Christ if he is our treasure. If he becomes our treasure, we begin little by little, progressing down that pathway, walking like him, talking like him, smelling like him, right? Paul talks about becoming the aroma of Christ, just a, that person, that's, that's a little, little Jesus-like, you know? And, and, that, and that's what we all need. So as we conclude our service this morning, we're going we're gonna to try to do that by doing that right kind of beholding, right? As Walt comes to lead us in our, in our, in our closing worship, we want to see all that Christ has done for us. And that's how we want to that's how we want to conclude. As, as he does that, as Walt comes, I want you to ask the Lord, or maybe it's Damaris coming, I'm not sure. I didn't get it all sorted out. <clears throat> Ask the Lord to open, or maybe to reopen, the eyes of your heart to see, to hold close, the one who conquered death for you and gives life to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's our prayer in this moment that you would open the eyes of our heart. We need this deeply, desperately, and the provision that you have offered in Christ is more than any of us could ever have dared to hope for or ask or imagine. So satiate, Lord, the desires of our hearts with the best news possible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.